Chapter Twenty of The Law and the Lady. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wiebke Müller. The Law and the Lady by Wilkie Collins. Chapter Twenty. The End of the Trial. The calling of the new witness provoked a burst of laughter among the audience, due partly, no doubt, to the strange name by which he had been summoned, partly also to the instinctive desire of all crowded assemblies, when their interest is painfully excited, to seize on any relief in the shape of the first subject of merriment which may present itself. A severe rebuke from the bench restored order among the audience. The Lord Justice Clerk declared that he would clear the court if the interruption to the proceedings were renewed. During the silence which followed this announcement, the new witness appeared, gliding, self-propelled in his chair on wheels, through the opening made for him among the crowd, a strange and startling creature, literally the half of a man, revealed himself to the general view. A coverlet which had been thrown over his chair had fallen off during his progress through the throng. The loss of it exposed to the public curiosity the head, the arms, and the trunk of a living human being, absolutely deprived of the lower limbs. To make his deformity all the more striking and all the more terrible, the victim of it was, as to his face and his body, an unusually handsome and an unusually well-made man. His long silky hair of a bright and beautiful chestnut colour fell over shoulders that were the perfection of strength and grace. His face was bright with vivacity and intelligence. His large, clear blue eyes and his long, delicate white hands were like the eyes and hands of a beautiful woman. He would have looked effeminate but for the manly proportions of his throat and chest, aided in their effect by his flowing beard and long moustache, of a lighter chestnut shade than the colour of his hair. Never had a magnificent head and body been more hopelessly ill-bestowed than in this instance. Never had nature committed a more careless or a more cruel mistake than in the making of this man. He had sworn, seated, of course, in his chair. Having given his name, he bowed to the judges and requested their permission to preface his evidence with a word of explanation. "'People generally laugh when they first hear my strange Christian name,' he said, in a low, clear, resonant voice which penetrated to the remotest corners of the court." I may inform the good people here that many names, still common among us, have their significations, and that mine is one of them. Alexander, for instance, means, in the Greek, a helper of men. David means, in Hebrew, well-beloved. Francis means, in German, free. My name, Miserimus, means, in Latin, most unhappy. It was given to me by my father, in allusion to the deformity which you all see, the deformity with which it was my misfortune to be born. You won't laugh at Miserimus again, will you? He turned to the dean of faculty, waiting to examine him for the defence. Mr. Dean, I am at your service. I apologize for delaying, even for a moment, the proceedings of the court. He delivered his little address with perfect grace and good humour. Examined by the dean, he gave his evidence clearly, without the slightest appearance of hesitation or reserve. I was staying at Gleninch as a guest in the house at the time of Mrs. Eustace MacAllan's death, he began. Dr. Jerome and Mr. Gale desired to see me at a private interview, the prisoner being then in a state of prostration which made it impossible for him to attend to his duties as master of the house. At this interview, the two doctors astonished and horrified me by declaring that Mrs. Eustace MacAllan had died poisoned. 
they left it to me to communicate the dreadful news to her husband and they warned me that a post-mortem examination must be held on the body if the fiscal had seen my old friend when i communicated the doctor's message i doubt if he would have ventured to charge the prisoner with the murder of his wife to my mind the charge was nothing less than an outrage i resisted the seizure of the prisoner's diary and letters animated by that feeling now that the diary has been produced i agree with the prisoner's mother in denying that it is fair evidence to bring against him a diary when it extends beyond a bare record of facts and dates is nothing but an expression of the poorest and weakest side in the character of the person who keeps it it is in nine cases out of ten the more or less contemptible outpouring of vanity and conceit which the writer dare not exhibit to any mortal but himself i am the prisoner's oldest friend i solemnly declare that i never knew he could write downright nonsense until i heard his diary read in this court he kill his wife he treat his wife with neglect and cruelty i venture to say from twenty years experience of him that there is no man in this assembly who is constitutionally more incapable of crime and more incapable of cruelty than the man who stands at the bar while i am about it i go further still i even doubt whether a man capable of crime and capable of cruelty could have found it in his heart to do evil to the woman whose untimely death is the subject of this inquiry i have heard what the ignorant and prejudiced nurse christina ormsay has said of the deceased lady from my own personal observation i contradict every word of it mrs eustace macallan granting her personal defects was nevertheless one of the most charming women i ever met with she was highly bred in the best sense of the word i never saw in any other person so sweet a smile as hers or such grace and beauty of movement as hers if you liked music she sang beautifully and few professed musicians had such a touch on the piano as hers if you prefer talking i never yet met with the man or even the woman which is saying a great deal more whom her conversation could not charm to say that such a wife as this could be first cruelly neglected and then barbarously murdered by the man no by the martyr who stands there is to tell me that the sun never shines at noonday and that the heaven is not above the earth oh yes i know that the letters of her friends show that she wrote to them in bitter complaint of her husband's conduct to her but remember what one of those friends the wisest and the best of them says in reply i own to thinking she writes that your sensitive nature exaggerates or misinterprets the neglect that you experience at the hands of your husband there in that one sentence is the whole truth mrs eustace macallan's nature was the imaginative self-tormenting nature of a poet no mortal love could ever have been refined enough for her trifles that women of a coarser moral fibre would have passed over without notice were causes of downright agony to that exquisitely sensitive temperament there are persons born to be unhappy that poor lady was one of them when i have said this i have said all no there is one word more still to be added it may be as well to remind the prosecution that mrs eustace macallan's death was in the pecuniary sense a serious loss to her husband he had insisted on having the whole of her fortune settled on herself and on her relatives after her when he married her income from that fortune helped to keep in splendour the house and grounds at gleninch the prisoner's own resources aided even by his mother's jointure were quite inadequate fitly to defray the expenses of living at his splendid country-seat 
Knowing all the circumstances, I can positively assert that the wife's death has deprived the husband of two-thirds of his income, and the prosecution, viewing him as the basest and cruelest of men, declares that he deliberately killed her, with all his pecuniary interests pointing to the preservation of her life. It is useless to ask me whether I noticed anything in the conduct of the prisoner or Mrs. Bowley which might justify a wife's jealousy. I never observed Mrs. Bowley with any attention, and I never encouraged the prisoner in talking to me about her. He was a general admirer of pretty women, so far as I know, in a perfectly innocent way. That he could prefer Mrs. Bowley to his wife is inconceivable to me, unless he were out of his senses. I never had any reason to believe that he was out of his senses. As to the question of the arsenic, I mean the question of tracing that poison to the possession of Mrs. Eustace MacAllan, I am able to give evidence which may, perhaps, be worthy of the attention of the court. I was present in the fiscal's office during the examination of the papers and of the other objects discovered at Gleninch. The dressing-case belonging to the deceased lady was shown to me after its contents had been officially investigated by the fiscal himself. I happen to have a very sensitive sense of touch. In handling the lid of the dressing-case, on the inner side, I felt something at a certain place which induced me to examine the whole structure of the lid very carefully. The result was the discovery of a private repository concealed in the space between the outer wood and the lining. In that repository I found the bottle which I now produce. The further examination of the witness was suspended while the hidden bottle was compared with the bottles properly belonging to the dressing-case these last were of the finest cut glass and of a very elegant form entirely unlike the bottle found in the private repository which was of the commonest manufacture and of the shape ordinarily in use among chemists not a drop of liquid not the smallest atom of any solid substance remained in it no smell exhaled from it and more unfortunately still for the interest of the defence no label was found attached to the bottle when it had been discovered the chemist who had sold the second supply of arsenic to the prisoner was called and examined he declared that the bottle was exactly like the bottle in which he had placed the arsenic it was however equally like hundreds of other bottles in his shop in the absence of the label on which he had himself written the word poison it was impossible for him to identify the bottle the dressing-case and the deceased lady's bedroom had been vainly searched for the chemist's missing label on the chance that it might have become accidentally detached from the mysterious empty bottle in both instances the search had been without result morally it was a fair conclusion that this might be really the bottle which had contained the poison legally there was not the slightest proof of it thus ended the last effort of the defence to trace the arsenic purchased by the prisoner to the possession of his wife the book relating the practices of the Styrian peasantry found in the deceased lady's room had been produced. But could the book prove that she had asked her husband to buy arsenic for her? The crumpled paper with the grains of powder left in it had been identified by the chemist and had been declared to contain grains of arsenic. But where was the proof that Mrs. Eustace MacAllan's hand had placed the packet in the cabinet and had emptied it of its contents? no direct evidence anywhere, nothing but conjecture. The renewed examination of Miserrimus Dexter touched on matters of no general interest. The cross-examination resolved itself in substance into a mental trial of strength between the witness and the Lord Advocate, the struggle terminating, according to the general opinion, in favour of the witness. One question and one answer only I will repeat here. They appeared to me to be of serious importance to the object that I had in view in regarding the trial. 
i believe mr dexter the lord advocate remarked in his most ironical manner that you have a theory of your own which makes the death of mrs eustace macallan no mystery to you i may have my own ideas on that subject as on other subjects the witness replied but let me ask their lordships the judges am i here to declare theories or to state facts i made a note of that answer mr dexter's ideas were the ideas of a true friend to my husband and of a man of far more than average ability they might be of inestimable value to me in the coming time if i could prevail on him to communicate them i may mention while i am writing on the subject that i added to this first note a second containing an observation of my own in alluding to mrs bowley while he was giving his evidence mr dexter had spoken of her so slightingly so rudely i might almost say as to suggest he had some strong private reason for disliking perhaps for distrusting this lady here again it might be of vital importance to me to see mr dexter and to clear up if i could what the dignity of the court had passed over without notice the last witness had been now examined the chair on wheels glided away with the half-man in it and was lost in a distant corner of the court the lord advocate rose to address the jury for the prosecution i do not scruple to say that i never read anything so infamous as this great lawyer's speech he was not ashamed to declare at starting that he firmly believed the prisoner to be guilty what right had he to say anything of the sort was it for him to decide was he the judge and jury both i should like to know having begun by condemning the prisoner on his own authority the lord advocate proceeded to pervert the most innocent actions of that unhappy man so as to give them as vile an aspect as possible thus when eustace kissed his poor wife's forehead on her deathbed he did it to create a favourable impression in the minds of the doctor and the nurse again when his grief under his bereavement completely overwhelmed him he was triumphing in secret and acting the part if you looked into his heart you would see there a diabolical hatred for his wife and an infatuated passion for mrs bowley in everything he said he had lied in everything he had done he had acted like a crafty and heartless wretch so the chief counsel for the prosecution spoke of the prisoner standing helpless before him at the bar in my husband's place if i could have done nothing more i would have thrown something at his head as it was i tore the pages which contained the speech from the prosecution out of the report and trampled them under my feet and felt all the better too for having done it at the same time i feel a little ashamed of having revenged myself on the harmless printed leaves now the fifth day of the trial opened with a speech for the defence ah what a contrast to the infamies uttered by the lord advocate was the grand burst of eloquence by the dean of faculty speaking on my husband's side this illustrious lawyer struck the right note at starting i yield to no one he began in the pity i feel for the wife but i say the martyr in this case from first to last is the husband whatever the poor woman may have endured that unhappy man at the bar has suffered and is now suffering more if he had not been the kindest of men the most docile and most devoted of husbands he would never have occupied his present dreadful situation a man of a meaner and harder nature would have felt suspicions of his wife's motives when she asked him to buy poison would have seen through the wretchedly commonplace excuses she made for wanting it and would have wisely and cruelly said no the prisoner is not that sort of man he is too good to his wife 
too innocent of any evil thought toward her or toward any one to foresee the inconveniences and the dangers to which his fatal compliance may expose him and what is the result he stands there branded as a murderer because he was too high-minded and too honourable to suspect his wife speaking thus of the husband the dean was just as eloquent and just as unanswerable when he came to speak of the wife the lord advocate he said has asked with the bitter irony for which he is celebrated at the scottish bar why we have failed entirely to prove that the prisoner placed the two packets of poison in the possession of his wife i say in answer we have proved first that the wife was passionately attached to the husband secondly that she felt bitterly the defects in her personal appearance and especially the defects in her complexion and thirdly that she was informed of arsenic as a supposed remedy for those defects taken internally to men who know anything of human nature there is proof enough does my learned friend actually suppose that women are in the habit of mentioning the secret artifices and applications by which they improve their personal appearance is it in his experience of the sex that a woman who is eagerly bent on making herself attractive to a man would tell that man or tell anybody else who might communicate with him that the charm by which she hoped to win his heart say the charm of a pretty complexion had been artificially acquired by the perilous use of a deadly poison the bare idea of such a thing is absurd of course nobody ever heard mrs eustace macallan speak of arsenic of course nobody ever surprised her in the act of taking arsenic it is in the evidence that she would not even confide her intention to try the poison to the friends who had told her of it as a remedy and who had got her the book she actually begged them to consider their brief conversation on the subject as strictly private from first to last poor creature she kept her secret just as she would have kept her secret if she had worn false hair or if she had been indebted to the dentist for her teeth and there you see her husband in peril of his life because a woman acted like a woman as your wife's gentlemen of the jury would in a similar position act toward you after such glorious oratory as this i wish i had room to quote more of it the next and last speech delivered at the trial that is to say the charge of the judge to the jury is dreary reading indeed his lordship first told the jury that they could not expect to have direct evidence of the poisoning such evidence hardly ever occurred in cases of poisoning they must be satisfied with the best circumstantial evidence all quite true i dare say but having told the jury they might accept circumstantial evidence he turned back again on his own words and warned them against being too ready to trust it you must have evidence satisfactory and convincing to your own minds he said in which you find no conjectures but only irresistible and just inferences who is to decide what is a just inference and what is circumstantial evidence but conjecture after this specimen i need give no further extracts from the summoning up the jury thoroughly bewildered no doubt took refuge in a compromise they occupied an hour in considering and debating among themselves in their own room a jury of women would not have taken a minute then they returned into court and gave their timid and trimming scotch verdict in these words not proven some slight applause followed among the audience which was instantly checked the prisoner was dismissed from the bar he slowly retired like a man in deep grief his head sunk on his breast not looking at any one and not replying when his friends spoke to him he knew poor fellow the slur that the verdict left on him we don't say you are innocent of the crime charged against you we only say there is not evidence enough to convict you 
in that lame and impotent conclusion the proceedings ended at the time and there they would have remained for all time but for me End of chapter twenty